Happy Epiphany Sunday. On January 6th, each year, the church celebrates Epiphany. We remember when the, the Magi come to visit Jesus, bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this story of the Magi, or wise men, sometimes gets glossed over onto Christmas, or just brushed aside as a fun kid's story. But that, that is a mistake. This moment in Matthew invites us to see something profound that God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the fulfillment of Israel's mission to be a blessing to all nations. The fulfillment of Israel's calling and purpose. And so today I want us to do three things. I want us to first retrace the mission of Israel through scripture. Second, look at the Magi for what they tell us about Jesus. And third, to celebrate the treasure of the nations. Retrace the mission of Israel, look to the Magi, and celebrate the treasures of the nations. So first, the mission of Israel. In the first 11 chapters of the biblical drama, we see the story of creation, the fall, the flood, confusion of Babel. Creation, destruction, restoration. It's broad and cosmic and sweeping. And then in chapter 12, Genesis slows down. And it focuses on a single man in Ur, Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And Genesis 12, 2 continues, I I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that it will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God called Abram out of the nations and he sets him apart. He creates a whole people out of him. And the nation is named Israel after his grandson, Jacob. He has a family entrusted with a mission, a purpose, to be set apart so that all the families of the earth might be blessed by them. Now, the distinction that, is, that made Israel a strange people were meant to keep their identity rooted in their relationship to the Lord and display the character of that Lord to a watching world. And from that relationship comes the blessing. Well, Israel over and over again fails to do that. They fail to be different. They fail at their mission by blending into the nations rather than standing apart from them, becoming just like them and offering because of this no witness to truth and clarity to the nations they're supposed to bless. Now imagine a poster with a dark gray background. If there was a bright white type font on it, the words stand out vividly. But if the type becomes grayer and grayer, the words, they just disappear and you can't read them easily. Israel was set apart by law and lineage to be different to have high contrast with the people around them, 
so that through them, people might come to see something true. Israel, and through the story of Israel, along with all the regular calls to faithfulness, the prophets remind the people of a glimmering hope. One where instead of Israel blending into the nations, the nations would stream to the dawn of Israel's light. And in our minor prophet study this fall, we see this theme over and over again. Israel failing to be different, but also the great hope that when they are different, that the nations would stream to them. And nowhere is that more clear in the book and all of the prophets than perhaps in Isaiah 60. It's the pinnacle of that prophetic hope. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and the, his glory will be seen upon you and the nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. And then you shall see and be radiant. Your hearts shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the seas shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you and young camels of Midian and Epha and all of Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Now, Isaiah pictures a world where the nations are drawn to Israel, where even the sea, which is so often a symbol of chaotic destruction, gives over its abundance and gives. Now, that is the purpose of Israel, to be the hill where the world assembles for worship, the bright light through which God illumines the darkness and calls people together in the worship of the true God. And in order to do that, they have to become distinct, set apart, consecrated for a task. And yet they languish. They languish in this task, a people in exile, even when they are back at home. Which brings us to part two. What the Magi tell us about Jesus and that mission of Israel. We know very little about these Magi which uh, in the way that we've told the story have become kings, probably because this text is so intimately connected to Isaiah 60, which talks about the kings coming to Israel. Magi just means wise man. And the text says they come from the east, which is pretty vague. Um, some people speculate they might have come from Babylon, but we have no idea. The persons, they're obviously persons of wealth and star reading, and they followed this star all the way to Israel and caused a huge stir in doing so because they are looking for a king in Israel, but Israel already has a king and a vicious one at that. And Emperor Augustus said that it is better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. The two words in Greek sound very similar because he's a Jew and he didn't eat pork, but he would kill his son if he expected him uh, to be disloyal. And in fact, we have evidence that on a different occasion, he slaughtered all the boys under two in Syria in order to put down a potential political rebellion. This highlights how badly things have gone for Israel 
even the emperor of Rome looks to Israel's king and marvels not at his strange piety and virtue, but his bloodlust, which really says something. But when these magi come to Jesus and note, worship him, they reveal something. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's mission, calling, and purpose. He is the fulfillment of the law's purpose. And Jesus himself states this, that he has not come to abolish the law, but rather to bring it to its telos, to accomplish its purpose. Jesus is the anointed one of Israel from the house of David. When these magi come to Israel bearing gifts, they signal a radical change that is about to be undertaken in the world. The nations are coming to Israel through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that stands out and gives a witness to the truth of God. In Jesus, the whole world is about to be blessed. Every tongue and tribe and nation, the universal opening of the blessings of God to the world. Our whole imaginations in the West have been so deeply marked by this move that we take it simply as self-evident that God desires all people. But it's not. The Magi represent the beginning of something that changed the world so deeply and so profoundly that it's hard for us to even conceive of the world any other way. God has a universal desire for creation. And these Magi come to worship Jesus. And just a few hundred years later, the Roman emperor worships Jesus. Today, even when we lament the stagnation of Western Christianity, the church in China and India and Iran and all over Sub-Saharan Africa grows like weeds. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment, the desire of the nations. He's the fulfillment of Israel's mission, of God's purpose and desire for creation and covenant, a blessing to all peoples. And we may be tempted to forget, in light of the church's real and significant heartbreaking failures throughout the ages, what world-shaking, earth-altering change this brought about. Wherever the gospel arrives, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized flock to it, because it is good news that changes everything. And this good news set the stage for hospitals and orphanages and eventually, praise God, abolition. The nations bring their children from afar and we can finally, in the person of Jesus, recognize them as children of God from a foreign land. Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's purpose and calling. Which brings us to the final point. What are the treasures that the nations bring? The story of Epiphany is not just about the light of the gospel going out into the nations. It's also a story of the nations bringing their gifts to Jerusalem. And I'm not just talking about gold and camels and frankincense, although that's clearly there in Isaiah 60. The text from Isaiah 60 talks about the wealth of nations coming to Jerusalem, the seas offering its abundance 
all that they have. And certainly this is a symbol of wealth and honor, but we should see so much more in the story of these wise men. We see Israel's ability to receive the gifts of other peoples and lands, their cultures and art and science and philosophy, all of it returning to and ordered by the Lord, the one from whom it sprung and in whom it finds its perfection, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when these astronomers come to Jerusalem, they take their knowledge and they learn from the scriptures of Israel in order to worship Jesus. And don't forget, these are probably pagans, Gentiles. These are foreigners who, for us, as all that we know, they don't worship the God of Israel yet. And in many ways, this offers us a template to think differently. First, it suggests that we should expect to find truth and beauty coming from unexpected and strange places and cultures. And second, it's a model for how we ought to understand and welcome such wisdom and beauty. Now, many of us in this congregation have traveled. In fact, I was shocked when starting this job to find so many of you were also expatriates at one point or another. And if you haven't traveled much, here in Boston, you've probably encountered other cultures and philosophies at work or in a classroom. I can remember years ago being uncomfortable when I recognized virtues, abundant virtues in people outside of the church. How? How do we think about Jesus' claim to be the way, the truth, and the life when we see such profound goodness in those who reject him? The surprise of epiphany is twofold both that the world sees the light of Christ and that we see Christ active in the world, even where he's hidden. In fact, it is necessary to see the irrevocable image of God in the other in order to invite them into the kingdom of God to belong, to see the gifts that they bring when they come to worship Christ. If the Lord creates the world good, and human beings at its pinnacle and in his image. If the word which created the world and also sustains the world is truly at work in it, even when the world doesn't recognize him, think about the light shining into the darkness and the darkness understands it not. We should still expect to find the stubborn, relentless mark of God's goodness, even in people who don't know him. And more than this, recall that the wind, the Spirit of God, it blows where it pleases. The Spirit of Jesus may already be at work in some place or heart, beginning to draw home into himself those who do not yet fully know him. Wesley called this provenient grace. Calvin talks about common grace. It's a similar kind of idea the spirit at work before us. And sin, remember, is not a substantial thing. It's a negation, a corruption, decay. Evil isn't creative. It's just manipulative and destructive. 
It's like termite damage on the foundations of good things. But think about this. That puts the devil at an infinite disadvantage because God is the creator. God is infinitely able to redeem that which he created. And as pervasive and atrocious as sin is, it can never expunge the essential goodness of creation. So when the Magi come to worship Jesus, they bring their pagan astronomy, and far from infecting pure religion, their science finds its true end, its truest end, in Christ. There is a profound lesson here, and one that is so vital for the place we live. We can imagine that the Magi are looking back from their bowed bodies bent before the true king, and look back on the path that led them here. They must have recognized that some of their former ideas and beliefs were misguided or even wrong, for which they will probably repent and turn. But as they turn their gaze to the new light of the star made flesh, they will also see the goodness and truth of the path and practice that led them to this place. Their pursuit of wisdom is not something that would be right for them to just scorn and reject and dismiss as simply entirely worldly or sinful. Nor is it perfect, complete, or uncorrupted, but rather it is an imperfect but truly good thing that led them to perfect truth and goodness. I used to dislike Christmas trees, uh, which is kind of a ridiculous thing, I know. Um, I disliked Christmas trees because they hearkened back to pagan origins. But that's not really looking far enough back, is it? Trees are not pagan. Trees are created by God. And so is light and beauty and song. And when my pagan ancestors started worshiping Christ, they found real and true fulfillment of their feasts and longings. What was often offered twistedly to gods of stone is straightened out into true worship of the word made flesh. And this is not Christianity infected by paganism. It's Christianity enriched by the nations streaming to the light of its dawn. Jesus is the fulfillment and the perfection of Israel's law, but also the fulfillment and the perfection of all of the desires of the nations. And when Paul sees an altar to an unknown God in Acts chapter 17, he says, see here, you are a religious people. That you speak about a God you do not know, let me introduce him to you. And he quotes a pagan philosopher stating, in him we live and move and have our being. And the history of the church is that when the gospel comes to Athens and Rome, the riches, intellectual, cultural, and societal, are brought to Jerusalem. And this need not be syncretism, just adding Jesus to an existing pantheon. It's not like Israel's witness blending into the nations and not having no distinction. No, it's putting the riches of the world to the preeminent glory of Christ. And this is what happens when God puts on all of humanity in the incarnation and fulfills the desire of all peoples. 
Last week, Ryan preached a sermon about our deepest desires and the true end of those deepest desires. And those are in every culture and people. And epiphany is an invitation to come and meet the end, the purpose, the fulfillment of those longings, and to bring everything they have to them, all of their gifts and beauties, to be submitted to and offered up to the resurrected Lord Jesus. And for this reason, when we see pagans who have real virtues, we should see God thumbing his nose at the devil. That even in persons in places where his name is not yet proclaimed, that his goodness and common grace cannot be denied. Christ does not give a spirit of fear, but of power and love. And nowhere is that more true than when we encounter people who are truly other. We are not just called to tolerate one another, though that is good. We are called to the far greater work of loving one another, of seeing in those who are not of our tribe gifts and graces and dignity, even when they are scary. And as an essential part of that love to celebrate the goodness, the truth, and the beauty that is God, wherever he is hidden in the world. This is a difficult moment in the life of our nation. And the love of the other, the love of truth, should be gifts that the church can offer up for the common good. An ability to listen, to be patient with one another, an ability to be long-suffering, an ability to celebrate good things in people we deeply disagree with. That is the, the virtues that can form the basis of a truly peaceful common life. And it's rooted in this truth, the truth of epiphany.